Welcome back to On the Road with Legal Talk Network. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is our last interview from ABA Tech Show 2023, still in Chicago, still at the Hyatt Regency, still along the Chicago River as it dumps out into Lake Michigan. It's a wonderful time, and I'm welcoming back a return panel. We're going to talk a little bit more about NFTs. I don't feel we did it justice last time, so <laughs> we're going to do it one more time. But let me uh, let me do a uh, round-the-table introductions here. So I have, to my left, I have Kristen Roberts, I have Jessica Near McDonald, and I have Diane Littlejohn. Mm-hmm. So why don't we start with uh, Kristen. Tell us, uh, you know, you're from San Diego, but uh, tell us about your firm. What do you work? What do you do? Hi, I'm Kristen Roberts. I'm the founder and managing attorney of Trussell Law APC located in San Diego, California. We're a full-service intellectual property law firm where we primarily help our clients uh, protect, police, and enforce their trademarks, copyrights, and patents um, via litigation, registration, etc. Excellent. All right, let's hear from Jessica. Hi, Jessica Near McDonald. Uh, I am a copyright and trademark attorney based out of Miami, Florida at a um, law firm I founded called Near MCD. And we focus exclusively on intellectual property law um, and serving Web3 uh, and beyond clients. All right. And Diane. Hi, I'm Diane Littlejohn. I'm the executive director of the Technology Law Policy Center at NCCU School of Law. That's in Durham, North Carolina. And I also am an IP attorney as well. I maintain a part-time practice doing um, trademarks and copyrights. Excellent. Mm-hmm. So I was in your session. I'm so glad that I attended your session. So obviously this is not my area of expertise, not an uh, intellectual property attorney. So I'm going to fumble through this. So uh, please forgive me in advance. So NFT and Web3, what are they and how does intellectual property law apply? And so kind of opened a Pandora's box of confusion for me. And so I know that we covered uh, non-fungible tokens in a previous interview, but I want to hit it again because you all know this area so well. And obviously all of you are very, very smart, and but it's hard to explain this. And so what I wanted to do is come back to the NFT definition, but this time maybe we can define it through how it's used. Because I think that's going to be that dot that connects everybody. Because I was still missing a little bit and I want to understand it. So why don't we start there? Non-fungible tokens, how are they used and, and what are they? Well, a non-fungible token obviously stands for, at NFT, non-fungible token. The fungibleness part of it is, you know, whether or not it can be exchanged or traded for something that's uh, in-kind. And they're not divisible, right? So Correct. Okay. Right. They're not divisible and they're not exchangeable like you would be. If you had a dollar in your hand, you could say, hey, I have a dollar. Um, give me, you know, four quarters. And you'd be getting the same. It's like for like, even though it's not identical, you're still getting the same value for it. That can't be said of something that's non-fungible. Because if I gave you my grandmother's ring and said, and you said, I'll give you $500 back for it, I would say, but that's not the same. We're not trading in kind, right? There's not a value for it that you can trade in kind. And that's really what you want to think about when you're thinking about non-fungible, uh, something that's non-fungible. A token is just a you know, digital representation of something. So if you go to a Dave & Buster's or a Chuck E. Cheese and you get gold tokens in exchange for money and you put them into the machines, think of it the same way, only a digital representation of it. So non-fungible token. Um, in terms of use, I and, and everybody else may have a, you know, different examples of use, but I like to think of it from the creator standpoint. You can look at it as a way to access certain information. So for example, you can use it like a pass. You can use it like a way of verifying that you have the right to enter into a certain Web3 um, gateway, Web3-enabled gateway. Um, You can use it to get access to certain events, certain perks, certain types of stuff. Uh, Like your podcast, for example, you could maybe put out a special set of episodes that only NFT holders can access. So from a creator standpoint, it's a really unique way of controlling access to content. 
So uh, it, in one aspect, it's like an access point, like a ticket, sort of like, a, you know, old fashioned ticket. So what are some of the other uses for NFTs just to kind of help bring it home? Yeah, there's also such things as non-transferable NFTs called soulbound tokens. Um, and there's many different types of, of tokens, by the way. But soulbound tokens, I think of um, as if you want to give, you know, if you're a university and want to give your degree, for example, or a certificate of completion or something akin to that, it's you're able to do that through an NFT, which is pretty neat. They um, have it in their wallet. It's identified with them. Um, we're also seeing it being used as a way of transferring blockchain domains or blockchain names. So that can really be a shortcut for your wallet address. And I know we talked about that yesterday, but that's uh, like your your digital wallet, it's essentially the public key part. So how are people going to be able to identify where you are? And so there's different forms of these. Like I know I have nearmcd.eth here, uh, and this is on the Ethereum blockchain through the Ethereum name service. But there are other types of uh, these names that are being used as shortcuts. So this is where you can find one of my wallets, for example. All right, and Diane, do you have some examples of NFTs you want to share? You can certainly use them in the art space and the music space as well. So essentially, artists can use NFTs to, to essentially sell their artwork, and music artists can certainly use NFTs to essentially sell and mint their, um, their recordings as well. And like Kristen was saying, you can kind of offer exclusive experiences with those NFTs, um, offer you know, private concerts, you know, kind of um, things that you would, never, would not normally get if you just went and stream, streamed it on Spotify or if you went and got the CD somewhere or went to a regular concert. Yeah, so I mean, tremendous marketing opportunities mm -hmm. here. So yeah. uh, reaching people where they are in their wallets, their digital wallets, right? So <laughs> there you go. One right. other way you could do it is uh, with a DAO too. So NFTs can be used in DAOs. And DAOs, please uh, uh, define for me. Decentralized autonomous organizations. Not so, DAW, digital not DAW. audio <laughs> workstation, my audio engineer. So DAO. Right, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations. And they can be used almost like as a voting rights, right? So you can treat the NFT as the ability to have a say in the DAO itself. So the DAO would control the pot and um, the DAO says what gets to be done with it, but everybody that owns the NFT that's a member to the DAO gets to get a vote based on what type of NFT they own. Okay. Uh, that was a great place to start. So now this is where my brain began to uh, short circuit during your presentation. So the, uh, <laughs> the physical world and intellectual property, I, it, that's a lot easier for me to picture. And so, you know, if you want to trademark something like a logo, uh, you want to copyright a work of art, you want to patent an invention, I got it. It's physical. I got it. Now, the digital world, it's not just the picture of it, it's use. And there's all kinds of nuanced little intricacies that are not being factored into the physical world. So old IP contracts don't necessarily <laughs> cover everything you need to cover in the NFT or the digital space world. So let's talk about that. That discrepancy is getting larger as these uses grow. So who wants to expound upon that? I think Kristen kind of has probably has some really good expertise on that. In terms of contractual discrepancies and things like that, I think you can look at it like we look at any kind of contract. I think a lot of attorneys um, fall into this trap of not frequently updating their template. So, <laughs> and lawyers use template, um, it's no secret, right? We all start with, you know, a contract that we've used before and we're like, this is chef's kiss, my contract that I'm gonna be using. I call them building blocks. Right, mm -hmm. I like right. that. I like that. <laughs> I like that too, I like that too. We start with our building blocks, right? <laughs> and oftentimes we have provisions in those building blocks that were drafted 
a little while ago. And so, and it, so it's a good idea to always be revisiting your contracts before you just start adding boilerplate maybe that you've used for years. So if you see the word Fortnite in there, you should probably pull it out. Like I wrote this a fortnight ago, so don't do that. <laughs> yes, I yes, absolutely. Sweet, anyway. No, but if you see things like, you know, floppy disks or microfiche, you may want to consider you know, updating some of the language in your contracts. Mm -hmm. But but same goes for this, right? You really want to, when you're crafting contracts, you really want to consider what it is that your client's goals are. Um, and if they're thinking about, you know, oh, I'm going to have this one type of offering. Well, is that a type of offering that frequently overlaps with offerings in the digital world? And if that's the case, you'll want to consider how that might be implicated. Let's give some examples of so like stuff that just specifically is not covered in the digital world. So you, uh, someone comes in, they, they have a physical product. Now, somehow it's being featured in the digital world. Yeah. Where, uh, where are they uncovered? Jessica here. So we have some examples in case law that we can look at for that, which is pretty exciting. We get excited when we're dealing with new industries. So um, there are some cases about books. So did book publishers and, and the author, did they contemplate that as part of their contracts when they initially wrote that book when digital books were created? Uh, who Does that affect the revenue stream for royalties? And and another example, there was a, a lawsuit involving Miramar, Miramax and Quentin Tarantino, uh, which we spoke about, which actually goes back to the contract that was created in 1990, I want to yeah, say. it was a long time ago. <laughs> right. And um, Quentin Tarantino retained some of the rights under that contract related to his copyright. So, how, so there was an argument and some wiggle room there for if that those rights that he reserved would apply to something like non-fungible tokens. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's just uh, with these uh, inventions and kind of new ways of using a product and these new tools, it's just the law just never seems to keep up. So, well, awesome. So I want to I want to build on that. So um, content creators out there, uh, more and more, I'm sure everyone's heard of ChatGPT, but people are also creating digital arts uh, based on artificial intelligence. And one of the great things about it was that uh, you could create this art. It's not copyrighted. So it's like, man, I need a picture of this. And I can look and all the stuff that I like is, is protected. Now I can craft an image with these tools. However, that may not be so unique. And if somebody else beats you to the punch and does an NFT on something you just created, use the same words, the same tool, now you may not be protected. Kind of like if you did a Adobe Photoshop original work, and uh, but the only problem is it's not those individual like strokes, like art, like a painter would do that makes it unique. Is it unique enough to be patented? So this is a big mess. And so I guess my question is, there's content creators out there that are doing stuff for their website, they're doing stuff for customers, uh, they're creating artwork. How at risk are they uh, for somebody to come and buy and say, hey, I did an NFT, you can't use that, and now this image is suddenly taken from access to the world in the artificial intelligence environment. I'm going to send that one to Diane first. Well, so I certainly think that they are. They do have a risk with that. I mean, granted, there's the copyright laws are kind of still in flux regarding, I guess, the um, issues with the AI art and all those things. But certainly, I would just be really careful with using the prompts and, and generating art that you may not own clearly the, the, the copyright to, and then creating NFTs based upon that art. It could certainly, I guess, in the worst case scenario, could certainly leave you open to liability. So what, what do you do? I mean, it's like if everyone's using the same tools and everyone's using the same series of words and everyone's kind of telling stories the same or you're covering the same story, chances are this is going to happen. So what do you do? Step one, read the terms. So yep. know what your rights are. Look, go to that platform and 
just like how you would be using other tools to assist with your content creation, like like a Canva or, or whatever, look at the terms to know what kind of rights that you have and try to go from there. Um, there is some uncertainty, as, as Diane was mentioning, as far as, for example, can you have copyright to right. the AI-produced images? And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people are questioning whether you actually own, whether it's even copyrightable in the first place. From the other perspective too, right? Because you're talking about the user end. From the other perspective of the artists, there's also significant risk that they're being exposed to because when you put your art up online, that's getting uh, cataloged on you know search engines and things like that. And those search engines are what a lot of this AI software is actually using to create its sort of way of mapping out these pieces of art. So if you're entering a prompt in, that art is influenced by artists that already exist. How do those artists protect themselves against the AI that's coming in and sort of creating similar looking artwork that looks like these artists? So step one for artists is make sure that your work is registered um, because that at least gives you some kind of foothold. Um, I think Jessica said it really best in this, in our last presentation, you know, this, the first step is making sure that you're protected and having that first layer of protection protection gives you the best tools that you can get to give you options if something happens. Well, that just brings up uh, another aspect there, like image and likeness. You know, real people out there using someone's face that uh, everyone can understand. There's a lot of digital records towards it. Someone that looks like, say, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney. Yes. yes. Deep deep fake. The Tom Cruise deep fake. Have you seen that? The Tom Cruise deep fake? I have fake? not heard about it. He, he looks like Tom Cruise anyways, but when his, his videos, you can't tell the difference. So what do you do with that? I mean, now uh, you're using this as descriptors, and now if somebody looks like somebody else, it's like, hey, that's my image and likeness. So these tools, I think, do come with some danger that uh, you potentially open yourself up for some liability. And I think image and likeness issues um, opens up a, another issue with respect to there is no blanket name and likeness law. Every state, it's a patchwork of laws across the country. There's no federal name and image, image and likeness laws. So in California, it's, it's mostly, they're mostly rooted in privacy rights. So in California, we have much higher um, protections because we have the entertainment industry. Same with states like New York, but other states in the country don't have as strong of protections in place. So when this happens, it really kind of comes down to the attorney that you get and their ability to sort of forum shop. All right, so my last question, I'm going to title it, The ABCs of NFT. Are you ready? <laughs> so somebody comes in, they want to, uh, they've got this image that they created, and they're, they're like, oh, this would be such a great marketing device. I, I need to go and uh, do you mine? Do you mine an NFT? What do you do? Mint it. Mint. Mint an <laughs> NFT. So they want to mint this NFT, but they want all of the protections to give them the maximum ability to leverage the value of this creation. So the ABCs of NFT, what should they be asking their intellectual property attorney? We'd probably want to know, did you create it yourself? Are you the sole creator? Did you work with somebody to create that? What were the tools that you used to create that image? Because what we're really assessing is more the, the image or the other media that the NFT would be pointing to. So in that sense, a lot of that is, is still the same, what we're used to. Yeah, and also, you know, what you mentioned, I want everything locked down. I want all of the protections. Well protections are about what you're trying to do with the NFT also, right? What's your goal as a creator? Are, are you trying to make this piece of art that you've created a, into something that you want people to invest in so that they can do things on their own? Because if you want to give them the license to do certain things to make the 
project more attractive to buyers, sometimes retaining all of the rights and locking it down super tight isn't the best way to accomplish that goal. So sometimes you have to get a little bit creative and, and be a little and provide some kind of licensing um, in order to get the goal that you're trying to accomplish. So it's really important to understand what the creator is trying to do overall. I agree. I echo all of that. I think those are those are really good tips for any creator that comes in and wants an NFT and when they, they, don't, they don't really know where to get started. This is one of the other interesting use cases for NFTs is it's being used as a licensing vehicle. Yep. Mm -hmm. So this is huge artist. Like you can have the possibility of collecting royalties, not just on your first sale, but subsequent sales after that. Now to enforce that a little iffy, part of your question might be what marketplace you may want to mint this at or are you, how much control you're going to maintain over the smart contract to try to enable those subsequent resale rights. So this is really an exciting tool uh, for artists especially. Well, we've reached the end of the road for this episode, but I want to give each of you an opportunity to leave some contact information, perhaps for another lawyer out there, have some questions. Maybe there, there's some crossover law. I, I know you all mentioned during your presentation, family law has got some crossover here, some other areas of law. but. Or more importantly, people that actually want to contact you for your services. So leave some contact information, the state and jurisdictions you practice. That'd be great. Let me start with Kristen. Uh, so I'm Kristen Roberts. You can reach me at my law firm, um, hello at trestlelaw.com, T-R-E-S-T-L-E-L-A-W.com. Uh, we practice in California, but we litigate all across the country. We pro hoc in and then we get, um, so we associate in and we do all registrations across all 50 states and internationally as well. All right, Jessica. Jessica Near McDonald's. You can contact me at Jessica at nearmcd.com or find me on Twitter at nearmcd. Diane. I am um, be contacted at, on, at, my, at my law firm, Little John Law Offices, or I can be contacted at my school, NCCU School of Law, at dlittlejohn23 at um, nccu.edu. And jurisdictions? Uh, North Carolina. Okay, excellent. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, if you're going to come by our booth, the 735 will be gone because the conference is over. But if you want to support us, please follow, subscribe, or better yet, leave a review in your favorite podcasting app or on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon Music, Stitcher, all the major podcasting apps. Until next time, I'm Lawrence Clady, and you've been listening to On the Road Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.